But I do love the narrative that has started to emerge around the concept of whether he was just like this daredevil student who had nothing better to do on spring break. <laughs> like the BuzzFeed Unsolved version of what might have happened to D.B. Cooper. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Is there such thing as a perfect crime? Is it possible to commit an act and leave no trace behind? Since the beginning of the detective and mystery genre, authors have been trying to trick us, fool us, hoodwink, and bamboozle us into thinking that there is such thing as a perfect crime, only to have their detective unravel it all. Today, I am joined by my fellow book detectives, Fiona, Gabriel, Virginia, and Mark, to explore the world of locked room mysteries. Now, I would like to thank all of my book friends for indulging me on this particular topic as Locked Room Mysteries or Locked House Mysteries or The Impossible Crime is one of my favorite subjects. A locked room mystery is pretty much what it says on the tin. It is usually a murder, which on the outside seems absolutely impossible for anyone to have committed the crime. For example, it might be in a room with no windows and a door that is locked from the inside, and yet somehow a horrible, horrible stabbing murder has been committed, seemingly without a perpetrator. What happens next is a battle of wits between the detective and the murderer, but also a battle between the writer and the reader, and therein lies the fun. In a proper locked room mystery, you have all of the clues at your disposal to solve the crime. You just have to be smarter than the writer. And usually you aren't, because why would you think it was an orangutan? That's a ridiculous thing to do. A locked room has also evolved into not just being a room, but it could be a remote house or a remote location with a limited pool of suspects. It can be an island where you all find yourself on or a train hurtling through Paris in the night or a spaceship for Virginia. The roots of this genre go back debatably, to Edgar Allan Poe's Murder in the Rue Morgue in 1841, but one could also make a shout-out for Sheridan Le Fanu, A Passage in the Secret History of an Irish Countess, which sounds like a euphemism, but I am assured is a mystery novel. (laughs) Some of the classics of the mystery genre encompass this idea of locked-room mystery because they are so fun to read. For example, author Conan Doyle has done several of these, including Adventure of the Empty House, Gaston LaRue did La Mystère de la Chambre Jaune. Father Brown by Chesterton has several of these because they are so fun to puzzle out. Arguably, some of the classics, the like the pure chef's kiss of this are The Hollow Man by John Dickinson Carr, Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie, and even though Virginia might have some feelings about it, The Tokyo Zodiac Murders by Soji Shimada. We are gathered here today to choose five excellent locked room mysteries. 
I can't wait to see what my fellow book friends have chosen and in what genres. And I also want to know whether they solved the mystery before the end of the book. So we are going to turn our attention over to Detective Gabriel. Detective Gabriel, what case do you bring to us today? So locked room, check. Mystery, kind of. Definitely locked room murder. Definitely locked room murder. And I suppose if we count maybe the mystery of the human psyche, in which case I think I solved it quick-ish. I just had to kind of point it, just figure out what little combination of isms I was looking at. So it is it is a delicate process, but mine might be the least mystery, but also potentially the most locked room in a traditional sense. And so I think it might balance it out. Because for my take on a locked room mystery, or as I might just say, a locked room murder, because I don't want to lie, I chose Reprieve by James Hahn Matson. So have you ever done an escape room? What about one with a horror theme? No? Well, welcome to Quigley House, which is a full contact horror extravaganza. What is full contact horror? Well, in normal haunted houses, you don't touch the actors and they don't touch you. But in a full contact haunted house, they touch you and you still can't touch them. Uh, this could range from light hairbrushes to lawsuits I read about while reading this book. But putting aside all of the legal questions that come with such a concept, why would you willingly go into a place that's likely to give you PTSD, if not any other variety of truly terrible circumstances. It's one of the questions that Matson tries to answer in Reprieve, but it's not necessarily the only thing that this book explores. And as is mentioned, there is a murder. So as far as I know, in real life, in these kinds of haunted houses, I don't believe anybody has been murdered. So you're not signing up for that if you go to one. But definitely in this book, it, it kind of happens. So Matson mentioned in an interview about this book when I was looking up going, is this is this real? Like, where did he get this from? Is this coming from his mind? Which a lot of it is. But he said that he originally was going to set the whole book in Thailand before he saw an ad for one of these full contact haunted houses and was curious about the sort of people that would do one. So it is based on a real place. It's McKamey Manor in Tennessee, which is actually, I did more research on it. It's worse than the one in the book. So other than the fact that there's someone who gets murdered, the actual haunted house in this book, which is quite bad, is nowhere near as bad as that real one. So obviously only look that up if you have a strong stomach, but it is interesting he maybe went easy on us with this one. The book is, it's actually marketed half incorrectly as horror. We don't have a catalog as horror though, which is the correct way of thinking about this book. It's got sort of a social horror in the same vein as maybe like a parasite or a squid game. And towards the end of the book, that's really when the escape room aspect really picks up. And there are some pretty horrific things that are done to our protagonists. But a lot of the book is actually just about the lives of the people who decide that they want to go through this haunted house. So Quigley House is a challenge that you can complete. If you can gather together a group and get to sell six, you win $60,000 and a t-shirt. So pretty good deal. 
And at any time, you can call out the safe word, which is reprieve. And it's also the title of the book, uh, to be let out of the challenge. Only one group has ever managed to get through before. Most chicken out after the first sell. But 60000 is a lot of money. And they stand a chance if they can work together as a team, right? And the one in real life, no one has ever completed. No one has ever been able to get through the full eight hours and multiple U.S. states that that crosses. So in this one, one team has gotten through before. And that team had a lot of things in common with the team that was trying to go through. And so, you know, they might have done it if one of them didn't get murdered along the way. Yeah, we have the murder. That's not a spoiler. The book opens with a court case transcription. So the question isn't so much what happened as much as why. I guess like if there is a mystery, the one that's unraveling at the center of the book, because it it quite quickly from the outset just sort of describes what happened. It doesn't immediately tell you who did it. But as you go along the story, you kind of start to get an idea of who it probably is, unless the author was going to pull like a very fast one on us. But I think most people probably have an idea of which one it's going to be out of the different characters. And the question is just sort of the strange cocktail of reasons why someone would do that, because that's not immediately obvious. The person who's murdered is Brian, one of the contestants. He's one of four that tried to make it through Quigley House, along with Victor, Jane, who is Victor's fiance, and JD, who's Victor's student. Victor was an English teacher in Thailand. And JD is someone who has come from Thailand, as well as um, we have some other characters. A lot of the characters aren't um, actually from the place that it it takes place in, which I believe is Nebraska. It's definitely in like a particular area of the States that is maybe not as friendly towards outsiders stereotypically. And we have these three different narrators, each with sections of the book, that make this kind of feel almost like lit fic as opposed to a horror story. And so that's why we definitely have it cataloged as such. And it's it's interesting because the first narrator we have is Kendra, who's Brian's cousin, who is a horror movie buff who works at Quigley House. She was there the night that he was murdered and witnessed the event. She's probably the most likable of the characters. She's not quite final girl, but she definitely feels a little bit like the final girl archetype. The next is JD, who's, as I mentioned, a student from Thailand who's come to America to pursue the English teacher who he has a crush on. And that teacher, as I mentioned, is Victor, another of the competitors. And his story deals kind of with the xenophobic rhetoric that he's internalized about his own culture, as well as his identity as a gay man and how he struggles to sort of maintain aspects of himself while assimilating in others. And then our last perspective is Leonard. He's a hotel manager who has connections with John Forrester, who's the owner of Quigley House. His perspective is the hardest to read, as he should be, given that he's the murderer. It's definitely an interesting read, and it's probably more appealing to like the litvic crowd as opposed to the horror crowd or the mystery crowd. Um, but it does a little bit of all of them, the horror driven kind of lived experiences of characters and the way they've interacted with our world is the way that the majority of this book fits together. Like it's kind of almost like novellas for each of these three perspectives. And then all of a sudden they're going through this horrific escape room trying to get out and one of them is murdered. So the stuff that is horror is done 
pretty well, but it's not most of the book. Most of the book is not that. It is more about, yeah, the lives of people and why they might attempt this particular PTSD thrill ride. And obviously didn't sign up to get murdered, but, you know, things happen, I guess. Especially when it's an escape room that you can't leave. So that was reprieved by James Hahn Matson. So I guess that I kind of knew what was going on early on, but I don't think that was me. I think that was just that this book has a little less mystery than I was hoping when I started, but still kind of fun. Okay. Well, I'm so glad that we started with someone who <laughs> who took the brief and just like technically fulfilled it. I like it. I like it. But I mean, part of the fun of a locked room mystery is that that terror, right? Especially if you are on a, and then there was none situation of you are, you're trapped, that feeling of claustrophobia, that feeling of being caught in a particular situation, that loss of control. So Gabriel, I'm going to give you it. I'm going to give you it. I think you, you fulfilled the, the vibe of a locked room mystery. All right. We are going to swing over to Detective Fiona to let us know what you have chosen. So finally, a book whose marketing material is accurate. My book is posited as Breakfast Club meets Pretty Little Liars, which definitely it delivered on. I have chosen a YA mystery, and I would would argue that this is very much like kind of the canon thriller mysteries, even though it's only 2017 for YA. And it is, in fact, a locked room mystery. It is One of Us is Lying by Karen McManus. Welcome to Bayview High Detention. Addie, Bronwyn, Cooper, Nate, and Simon are all there because they brought their phones to class. But each of them claims that the phone was planted on them. When one of the students dies in detention from a severe peanut allergy after peanut oil is planted in his drinking glass, the other four become the main suspects in the murder trial. It doesn't help that he was just about to leak some serious dirt on each of them. So though the students think fast to save their classmate, all of the EpiPens have been removed from the school's nurse's office, and there was a car accident right before he choked to death. So there is definitely an indication of some tampering happening in this this scenario being set up. Addie is with the popular crowd. Her jock boyfriends means everything to her, despite his controlling nature. Bronwyn is brainy but beautiful. Can they please stop talking about how beautiful she is? And seems to be buckling under the pressure of her need to be perfect for her family. Cooper is an all-star baseball player who's just trying to live up to his dad's expectations. Nace is a bad boy. This was like the most breakfast club aspect of it. He rides a motorcycle and he's on probation for dealing drugs. He like pretty much just walked right out of a stereotype. And Simon is the kid who writes scathing articles about his classmates and posts them on a gossip news app. Another kind of aspect that felt a bit breakfast clubby is as the mystery deepens, the surviving students are thrown together to form a clique of outsiders who are frankly quite charming. So I went into this expecting and hoping for some trashy drama mystery, and it it delivers on that, but it also has a lot of heart, and I came to really like the characters. So I feel like it kind of delivered on a lot of 
different areas in terms of being a fun locked room mystery, in terms of having that sort of like gossip girl drama aspect to it, and then also somehow creating characters that I cared about and ultimately did not want them to be murderers. So in the first few chapters, it's actually like very generic and I almost put it down. But it definitely has some self-awareness and that and that becomes more evident as it goes on. Unfortunately, the mystery was quite predictable and I did figure it out about a third of the way in. But I think this is because I have an awareness of locked room mysteries. So although and I like I'll try to say just the right amount to like not ruin it, but like, well, it wasn't, you know, there was it was not literally a locked room. And we had things like, well, maybe the peanut oil came through the the water and stuff like that, like these possibilities of where it could have happened. I knew that because it was a locked room mystery, the answer was going to be inside of the room. So although we actually get this like secondary cast of characters who's quite interesting and they all have motives for being the killer, it's easy to dismiss them because you know, like as a classic locked room mystery that that the answer is going to be from within and that they may have to pull some punches to make that work. So it did make it a little bit easy to solve because you could cancel some things out. Also, there's an entirely cringy romance going on uh, that almost ruined it for me. Uh, I wish I'd just skipped the epilogue, which is about them, you know, ultimately living happily ever after until I'm sure the next book comes out. But it really did hold up for me. And this book uh, was on my radar because it is on like every best of list for YA mysteries that I have ever seen. So it was it was pretty exciting that even though, uh, you know, a lot of things have come after it, it was still worthwhile to go back and read this. And I do feel like, you know, it's not like it's not like YA mystery is like has a huge history because YA is a, a fairly new genre. But it's very satisfying to both check something off the like the canon, but also to have this drama filled contemporary mystery. It was quite a satisfying read. And I do think it, you know, it set out to do something pretty basic um, with the locked room mystery and the teen drama, but it succeeded in all of those things and in a you know, in a successful way. So I'd say like it had, it had reasonable goals. And then instead of, you know, like having lofty goals and then failing, it had reasonable goals and then like totally led up to them. A very, a very like just fun beach read. Again, we're also getting that like canon check off. So definitely would recommend this when you're looking to just blow through something and end up caring about a cast of characters more than you expect to, especially Addie. Her development is awesome. So I'm kind of thinking about going on to the second one just to see what happens with her. So this is One of Us is Lying by Karen M. McManus. Fantastic. Thank you, Fiona. I like that you kind of went for a classic, but maybe in a different a different area. All right. Well, it comes time that I want you to put your real detective skills to work and answer this existential question. Now, locked room mysteries are all about the perfect crime, and uh, maybe I should preface, none of these crimes are perfect, they're all bad, they're all bad, but either through a set of circumstances or just straight up incompetence, willful or unwillful, some crimes are not solved. In fact, within the locked room mystery idea, there are at least a couple of crimes that 
aficionados have declared as unsolvable and a locked room, including the 1929 murder of Isidore Fink in a like fifth store apartment building, and Letitia Horneau in 1937, who was on the Paris Metro in a first class compartment and was murdered within a minute and a half of the train taking off. But I am curious to know from my book friends, what is one unsolved murder, cue unsolved mysteries theme song here, that you would love to see solved? Uh, I'm going to go first to Virginia. Virginia, what what crime would you like to see solved? Well, perfect that you picked me because I this is not my thing. Like I, this is like my husband's area of expertise. True crime is just not my thing. Anyway, so because we were talking about the other book that you mentioned, Zodiac Murder Mystery, so only that's the only thing I would think of is the Zodiac Killer, right? Like, which is very, very boring, super boring answer. But yeah, what I was thinking of, because the word Zodiac keep getting stuck in my brain this whole day. So yes. And I think one of the one of the letters just got solved recently, right? Like I think it was like in two years ago that they finally cracked one of the other letters. So that is super fair. And there's a lot to be said for like the very strange kind of like media convention of giving bad people cool nicknames. Like we could just not. We could not because then it kind of makes them into something more than they are. All right, Mark, what about you? Well, much like Virginia, this also is not my area at all. So when I was thinking about this, and it's funny because you mentioned Edgar Allan Poe earlier, because I was thinking of like questionable literary figure deaths. And Poe's death has long been considered somewhat questionable. There's been a lot of speculation about what his exact cause of death was. All that is really known for sure is that he was kept in like a hospital that was really more like a prison. He was denied visitors and only his doctor was allowed to see him more or less. And there's been a lot of questions about the doctor's credibility and why Poe died. Like his accounts of the story have changed over time and things like that. So this very much almost seems like the setup for a novel itself. And the the one person who knows that truth is not potentially credible sort of an unreliable narrator of sorts and now we have to like figure out what really happened in this locked room that Edgar Allan Poe was being kept in so good and then there's the questions about his clothes right and like maybe he was one of the people that they kind of like kidnapped and then plied with alcohol and then made him vote for a certain person anyways yeah there's theories. All right, uh, Fiona, what about you? So I also didn't think I cared about this. And then I remembered something from a book that I read and talked about uh, recently, the Catherine the Great by Robert K. Massey. So Catherine the Great's husband, who she overthrew and stole the throne from, <laughs> Peter Third, died, or maybe didn't, in very suspect circumstances. So basically, at this point, they're already talking about overthrowing him. And whether or not they should kill him. So that's pretty suspect. And then he goes uh, and he's like drinking and hanging out with her lover and her lover's brother and this like whole little gang that they have. And Peter III dies. I think what they told the public was that it was like an accident, but then like, you know, like a full on accident having nothing to do with her lover. But then there's this note from him to her being like, I'm so sorry, you know, and his explanation is that it was like uh, he said something inflammatory and things got out of hand, which, you know, like sounds pretty reasonable because he said a lot of inflammatory things. And then there's just, you know, like also the idea that this note is just covering up the fact that Catherine did know about it and this was their whole plan and this was a great way to kill him. Um, and of course, this like follows her throughout her her reign and nobody really knows. And I don't think we ever can know 
But then it also comes back to Spider because this guy comes back and pretends to be Peter the Third, and so tries to take the, uh, the throne. Certainly, from the book that I read, they're like, yeah, no, there's like we have pictures of both of them, and like it's like you could not be more different men. But you know, you always you always gotta wonder, <laughs> um, like what's what's going on here? Yeah, who who was duping whom, or was it really just an accident? That is the best way to do the perfect crime. It was a terrible accident. All right, Gabriel, what about you? So I'm also not really a true crime person as much. Usually when I like the unsolved mysteries that I like have less to do with the crime and more just to do with like, we don't know what happened or like, we don't know what something is. If I had to choose a crime, I guess, I don't know if this is technically like the name of the crime, but I sort of know this question is who put Bella in the witch elm? which is a like a very specific type of graffiti that started appearing around like a specific place in England after there was a essentially like a skeleton kind of remains that was found in a witch elm in like a very strange position too. There's, there's a lot of weirdness with like kind of who she is, how she got in there, what happened. And so in the sort of, I had mentioned one of my anticipated books, Elvia Wilkes' Death by Landscape, talks a lot about the concept of women becoming trees as a form of resistance. And so it's funny that I was thinking of, <laughs> I know, uh, it was funny that I was thinking of the concept of who put Bella in the witch elm when I was reading a lot of that. And so I think it's just been on my mind lately. But the follow-up answer for like second best of is D.B. Cooper. Not because of the fact that I think D.B. Cooper was particularly impressive or I care that much, but I do love the narrative that has started to emerge around the concept of whether he was just like this like daredevil student who had nothing better to do on spring break. <laughs> like the sort of like BuzzFeed Unsolved version of what might have happened to D.B. Cooper. So I think that one has the potential to be kind of fun if we find out. Nice. He definitely died jumping out of that airplane. <laughs> All right. For me, apparently the lone true crime fan in this group, it's fine. Um, for me, it's absolutely impossible to choose. There are so many. They obsess me. I, I can't stop thinking about them. But I mean, I, I, I to kind of go with Marx, I could ask about like the potential murder of Vincent van Gogh. So there are questions as to whether it really was that or whether it was, again, a horrible accident perpetrated by children playing cowboys who accidentally murdered Vincent van Gogh. <laughs> Whoops. Or like the Basilica axe murders um, because it just, it, it's something that's so scary. But I'm actually going to go super classic and I'm going to go to say Jack the Ripper because I want to stick it to Patricia Cornwall. <laughs> um, if you are not aware of what Patricia Cornwall has said, claimed, spent a lot of money backing, uh, you definitely should because it's quite a treat and I just want her to be wrong. I know she's wrong, but I want her to like really be wrong. I want her to be wrong and to say sorry. <laughs> so yes, those are uh, some, some crimes that we would love to have answers to. But as you say, they we we might not ever get that chance that they're 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 so far in the past they're so unprovable even with the advances in technology that we're seeing some some mysteries will just remain mysteries but the books that we are talking about are definitely solved because they have a beginning a middle and an end um the book that i am going to talk about begins with evander mills 
and he is disgraced and getting his drink on at two o'clock in the afternoon in a seedy, seedy bar where he and a young couple in the corner are the only people there because it's two o'clock in the afternoon in San Francisco. And he is essentially determined to get extremely drunk and then gently put himself into the ocean. Vander Mills has been having a very rough two days. As he is slowly contemplating his end, a woman walks into the bar. Now, if this was your traditional PI mystery, she would be a femme fatale. And she is. She's well-dressed, obviously from a higher class, used to the nicer things. She sidles in to the seat next to him and says, I have a job for you. Pearl explains that she wants Evander Mills, disgraced former police inspector, to find out who murdered her wife. This statement shakes Evander or Andy out of his stupor. The year is 1952, and he has been dismissed from the San Francisco police for having been caught in a raid on a gay bar in a compromising situation by his former co-workers. He was immediately arrested, dragged through the bar, put in the cells of his former workplace, and then summarily dismissed. His entire life is in shambles. There is no recovering from this for him. To be outed as a gay man in 1952 is tantamount to him to a death sentence. But Pearl believes that Evander is uniquely suited to solve this mystery. Irene Lamontagne, Pearl's wife, was the owner of the Lamontagne Soap Company. She was the one who mixed and brewed all of their fantastic, very, very popular soaps. However, she was found dead on the floor of her library, having seemingly taken a fall. However, Pearl does not believe that it was an accident. Pearl believes that Irene was murdered. And what is more horrifying to her is that she was probably murdered by someone in the house. Lavender House is the home that Irene and Pearl have built together. In it, it is a safe queer space for them, their son Henry, and his husband Cliff, Margot, his wife on paper and in the newspapers, and Elsie, her paramour, the cook and the gardener, and Pat the butler that Andy definitely recognizes from his time at the club, and finally Alice, Margot's mother. They all live together in this beautiful bubble of acceptance and safety that is Lavender House. But someone has broken that safety and broken that trust. And so Andy decides to move in and investigate As he looks closer into what happened in Irene, he determines that it was, in fact, a murder and that someone in the family did it. This is Lev A.C. Rosen's Lavender House. I think it was one of my most anticipated books of the fall that I'm actually reading and following through on. Take that, Liz. Um, It is a novel of found families. It's full of historical details from the 1950s in the queer community. It talks about kind of like the devastating small pains that the queer community experienced at that time and then the, the big, big heartbreaks and oppression. It is 
weirdly enough for the subject matter, I was actually thinking it was going to be a little bit deeper. This is a cozy mystery. This is a cozy locked room mystery that is very light and is very obviously the beginning of a series. So I really enjoyed all of the characters, especially Margot, just because she's named after my mom and she likes to destroy people, which I enjoyed quite a great deal. And if you are looking for kind of like a fun, cozy, historical locked room mystery, um, you could you could enjoy this. I think that the mystery was maybe a little bit slight, which was a little bit disappointing. Um, I was hoping for it to be a little bit more in depth, but sometimes you just have to take things at face value. And this was a lovely, cozy mystery about someone found dead in a library, which is a classic Classic, classic trope. So I appreciated all the kind of nods to that and all of the different sources that Rosen was pulling from. So if you're looking for, again, kind of like Fiona's, a mystery that you don't really need to think too hard about, could do no worse than The Lavender House by Lev Rosen. All right. We are going to swap over to Virginia, which I think yours is not cozy at all. Now, why would you say that? Why would you say that? Do I only do the dark gruesome things? Maybe. Anyway, this assignment actually brought back lots of memories because the first sort of adult fiction that I read as a librarian was probably mostly in mysteries and thrillers. And one of my go-to, of course, is Japanese mystery novels. Read a lot of those, watch a lot of those dramas. And one of my favorite was The Devotion of Suspect X by Keiko Higashino. And so when I saw that, then another one of his books was on one of those lists where I talk about this is the locker room mystery. I knew that that was the book that I have to read. So what I got for you today is Malice by Keiko Higashino, translated by Alexander O. Smith. This is first published in 1996 in Japan. So they still talk about Fax Machine in there. It is by award-winning author, part of the Detective Kaga series. It's the first one translated into English. However, it is the fourth book in the series. And there have only been two other that have been translated. Number eight, Newcomer, and number nine, The Death in Tokyo. But I don't think you really have to have uh, read the other ones because it is kind of a standalone story. Now, because this is an episode of Log Room Mystery, let's start with that. Kunihiko Hitaka and his wife, Rei, are moving from Japan to Canada, to Vancouver, in fact. So that was kind of excited to see since we're in Vancouver. And they are furiously packing up. There's boxes everywhere in the house. It's super chaotic. And so they figure it would be better if they stayed the night at the hotel since most of the stuff is already packed up. Ray decided to go ahead first because Hidaka has work to do. He is a writer and he is supposed to submit the next installment for his serialized novel before he leaves for Canada. And he hasn't done a thing yet. So he figured he would stay home, you know, in a familiar environment. Maybe that would get him to write a little faster. However, he never finished his manuscript. He never made it to the hotel. And we never see Vancouver in the book because he was murdered that night. At six o'clock, Osamu Nonoguchi got a phone call from Hidaka. And Hidaka has asked him to come over. Can you drop by the house? There's something I need to talk to you about. And it's better give it in person. Nonoguchi thought that was really weird because he was already there that day, that afternoon, just a few hours ago. 
He is a fellow writer, and in fact, Hidaka probably helped him get published. So they have remained friends, and he wanted to go over there in person to say goodbye and wish them the best of luck to the next stage of their life. So why didn't he just tell him whatever he needs to tell him like earlier? So Nodokoshi was like, okay, well, fine. I'll come over, but it has to be like maybe around eight o'clock because my editor is here right now and we're working on my manuscript. And so once we've done the work, I'll come over. So around eight and Hidaka was like, sure, perfect. At eight o'clock, Nodokoshi arrived at the house. It is completely dark. He knocked on the door, rang the doorbell. No one is home. And Nodoguchi is getting really annoyed because it's like, you told me to come all the way over here and you're not even home. You left already. So he called the hotel to try to look for Hidaka, but instead he got Ray. And Ray is like, wait, Hidaka is not here. He, he's still in the house. And Nodoguchi is like, no, he's not. There's nobody home. I'm right there. And so Ray started to get worried and she's like, okay, I'll come over right now and we'll go take a look. So Ray dropped by with the keys, of course, to get in the house because it's locked. And then they went straight to Hitaka's office, which is also locked. And when they finally got the door opened, they found Hitaka's body lying on the floor in a puddle of blood. And when the police came, they figured that he probably got hit in the back of the head with this blunt object, likely the paperweight that is lying right next to the body. And then he was strangled to death by the telephone cord. In charge of the crime, in charge of the murder, is Detective Kaga, whom Nonoguchi recognized and knew. They actually both used to teach at the same middle school. And Nonoguchi quit his job, went on to become a writer, and Kaga became a police officer. So now it is up to his old colleague to figure out who killed his friend, Hidaka. Now, I have to say I was a little concerned before I started this because because I really haven't been in the mood for mystery and thriller for like quite a few years now. So I was like, oh, am I going to still enjoy this? Something that's quite dear to me. I, I was a little worried. It also doesn't help that I would say probably by like not even a third of the book, Detective Kaka has already figured out the trick of the log room mystery. He has already arrested the murderer. And there's still like a lot of book to go. So I was just like, what is happening here? It's also not the case of like, oh, they got the wrong person or like they got it all wrong. No, everything is just as Detective Kaga described. Case close. And the locker room mystery, I know for a locker room mystery episode, it's not like super complicated. It seems like if you had read enough case close manga, you probably would have figured this out. So I was just like, okay, what is the deal here? But the mystery is really not about who did it, but why? Why did the murderer kill Hidaka? What is his motive? What is the story here? And that is what Detective Kaga really has to figure out because he has absolutely no idea what the relationship is here. And here's really where that detective work, that police procedural stuff that I love so much comes in. The whole interviewing people, doing the legwork, gathering clues, reviewing piles and piles of documents, watching videos, trying to connect the dots. All of that is trying to establish the motive. And that's really where the mystery is. And here's also where you see the author working his magic, putting twist after twist after twist into the story. All the misdirections you needed, everything is so tightly plotted as he built and slowly unveiled that story 
behind the murder. So how silly of me to worry about that mystery being too straightforward. Like this is totally not like that. So yes, there is definitely this very tightly plotted story, but I think what appeals to me as I kind of read this again, remember about Higashino's work is that I I really like the way he he looks at like human nature, he looks at motive, he looks at inner workings of the human psyche. And I think as in any other genre that I, I tend to enjoy, it's usually like the people. That's usually why I stick around. It's not really so much about the mystery. I know Corinne is very much about solving the puzzles and I know she's super good at getting the mystery beforehand. And I know that's that's the thing about mysteries, right? Like, you know, it's kind of more like a cerebral genre in some ways. You know, people enjoy it because you get to solve the mystery and you try to raise against the detective to solve the mystery before the book ends. That's part of the appeal. I get it. But for me, it's just like, I, it's just never really a thing for me. Like, I, I just, I don't care as much about that. So I think that's why Higashino's workbook for me is because it's not really about the puzzle solving. It's just about looking at people. And that's always like, for me, more the interesting part. So I, I think his books achieve both for sure. And um, we mentioned this earlier already, but if you're really looking about like solving a mystery, go look at that Tokyo Soviet Murders by Soji Shimada. It appears on the second spot on The Guardian's top 10 locker room mystery. So it is definitely like Corinne said, a well-known one. And even halfway through the book, there's an author's note there. And he's like, you know what? I have already given you all the clues. Everything you need to solve this mystery has been presented. And can you do it before the book ends? So he's like taunting the readers to solve that mystery. So if you're really into kind of that puzzling thing, then then look at that. But I have to say, that one's a lot more gruesome in some ways when you really think about it than, than Malice. Surprisingly, Malice is really not gruesome, but it's pretty dark in the concept side of things. So if you have never read a Japanese mystery novel, well, there are many, many for you to discover. And I highly recommend you to check out Keiko Higashino's book. And before I go, I just have to give a shout out. I know I keep putting these books. Six Weeks by Merle Ferdi, best logroom setup ever. I didn't take everybody to space this week because I recently talked about Merle Ferdi's new book, Station E Eternity. So I thought I would recommend a different offer. But this is the best locker room mystery, I think. So if you're looking for a mystery that happened in space, there is six weeks here. I like how you snuck in another one, just like, just very, very sneaky of you. But yes, uh, the the Tokyo Zodiac Murders is, uh, yeah, it's a lot. But as Virginia said, there's a lot of really amazing Japanese detective novels, especially a lot of ones that deal with kind of like that idea of the locked room mysteries. So the Decagon House Murders, also very good. And anything by uh, Seishi Yokomizu, who has the detective Kosuke Kindachi, are all like, mm top tier so good they capture that idea of like the golden age locked room mystery and and excel at it yeah all right well thank you very much virginia and now we turn our attention last but not least to mark mark where are you taking us for my book i'm gonna be taking us to the merry old uk and the scottish highlands in lucy foley's the hunting party so lucy foley is primarily known for writing mysteries from what I gather. I'm not particularly familiar with her, but she comes from this from a sort of British background. She went to an English university and has been published in many English publications. And you can kind of see that in this book because all the main characters of this book are a group of nine friends. They are now in their 30s, but they all met each other during their student days at Oxford. So just from the Scottish Highlands and Oxford, you can tell already this is going to be a very British book. 
So if you're kind of a fan of that kind of setting, then right away, you can kind of get a feeling for what you're going to be in for with this book. As I mentioned, this group of friends met each other at various parties, classes, and club meetings throughout their four years that they spent at Oxford. Most of the people in this group are also couples, but they don't always have the best personal relationships with the other people in the group. So it's sort of like a classic case of my partner is friends with so-and-so, but I actually kind of hate so-and-so, and and I only talk to them because they're friends with my partner. This has led to some rocky points in the group's history with various people sort of teetering on the brink of leaving the group but still remaining because of their history and or liking for other people in the group. Because this group originally formed during their lives at Oxford, in each person's school life in one form or another after graduation, they weren't able to spend quite as much time together. To try and remedy this, they've developed a tradition where each year they reunite for a special New Year's trip along the weekend to catch up, reminisce, and uh, spend their precious little vacation time together as a group. As they all now have like their own professional careers, they've moved to different parts of the country and various things like that. So this is kind of like a special time for them to reunite for a few days of the year. Uh, I'm going to quickly introduce you to these nine people. I can't really give you like a full psychological profile of all of them as much as I would like to, because it very much is a, an important part of this book is the different relationships between the characters, but that would take much too long. So I'm just going to give you like a little postcard version of these characters. So the first couple is Emma and Mark. Mark is sort of like the hot-headed, kind of macho, in-your-face kind of guy. He's very like traditional, masculine type of person. That's kind of his personality type, very much gets displayed during this book. And Emma is Mark's girlfriend, and she's sort of been stereotyped in this group as the new girl, sort of quote-unquote. No matter how long she's known everyone, they've been, uh, she's been friends with all of them for more than 10 years, but she sort of had very loose ties with the rest of the group because she's kind of like the new, newest person to come into this group. So her ties has mostly been with Mark. And the other members of the group have been somewhat loose and tenuous. There's Bo and Nick, the gay couple. Nick being the sort of Oxford heartthrob who got all the attention at school, um, broke so many hearts when he came out, and then started going out with Bo. And Bo is his American boyfriend who he met as he was studying abroad at Oxford. And then sort of later developed into a relationship with Bo staying in England to be with Nick. There's Samira and Giles the new parents to a six-year-old girl named Priya, who they brought along on their trip. And this is uh, much to the chagrin of the other members of the group who resent having to be with a little whiny nuisance on their little vacation trip with each other. There's Miranda and Julian, one of the longest-term couples in the group, and have been married for several years now. Julian works in finance and banking. He's also began to dabble in insider training on the side, which uh, mortifies Miranda. Miranda, as since she's married... Julian, she sort of lost a bit of her independence, so to speak. She kind of strives to be a, a career woman, but has sort of been pigeonholed a little bit as sort of like a housewife by Julian. So in response to this, Miranda's been trying to get more work outside the house. She's working in web design and her portfolio as she's been trying to, as I sort of say, like to assert her independence a little bit more from Julian. And then finally, there is Katie, the sort of quote unquote single one of the group. Katie was Miranda's best friend at Oxford. But it's been a bit of an outsider to some in the group as the only single person in the group and at times is sort of shy and private about her life. So it's kind of made her a bit of a third wheel when she's with some of the other people in the group as the sort of perpetual single person who doesn't have her own partner to sort of be with there in the group. And now to the plot. So for this year in the in the book, the group has decided to spend their New Year's trip uh, to a remote estate in the Scottish Highlands. And this estate is so secluded that aside from uh, a 
few stewards and gamekeepers who live on the estate to tend to it over the year. They rarely see anyone venture onto the estate, except for the occasional intruder, such as poachers, sort of trying to capture the wild game that is kept on the estate. It's owned by sort of like this rich landowner who sort of keeps the estate as like a rented out property for parts of the year. And that's also tended to by these, these gamekeepers and uh, housekeepers and things like that. So you sort of get this feeling that's very secluded and and the actual sort of murder aspect of this story, it's not so much a locked murder as much as like a locked estate, so to speak, because there's no one else within miles. It's just this group of people that are known. Like we know who all the people on this area are. They get a very in-depth look at who they are, their relationships with one another. So there's no like surprise person who comes in is like, oh yeah, there's this person who came off the estate and killed someone or anything like that. There's none of that kind of aspect to it. Very much these are the main people how do they kind of interact why would one of them want to kill the other how did that kind of like work out and so to speak i should also introduce the staff members of the estate and that's heather doug and ian Ian isn't so pretty important so i'm just going to ignore him for a second he kind of leaves midway through the novel he's one of the people that's there but he leaves over new year so then he's not actually there for any of the action so i'm just going to ignore him for a second doug is the gamekeeper and is responsible for attending to the horses dogs and other wild animals that live on the estate. He's also responsible for guiding guests on sort of hunting tours and uh, making sure they don't shoot each other in the face or do anything stupid like that. Kind of gives the book its actual name, The Hunting Party, because one of the things that they're going to be doing on this estate is hunting. Doug is also a sort of fairly grizzled countryman who has less than a high opinion of the guests who stay at the estate, with our nine friends being no exception to this rule. Doug sort of sees these people as kind of like these posh, high-class people kind of going all away for the weekend, trying to slum it with the country people for a little while. So he doesn't particularly like any of these people. And you kind of get that through his inner monologue and dialogue with some of the characters. There's also Heather, who's sort of more on the guest and hospitality side of the business and sees to their living quarters, meals, and other amenities uh, that the guests expect from a kind of luxury stay in the middle of nowhere. She's also kind of like the exact opposite of Doug. So you kind of see how she kind of tries to be more accommodating and hospitality-like to the guests, whereas Doug is a bit more gruff and rough with the, the guests uh, not being quite so cordial and polite as Heather is. Also staying at the estate are a couple of other, a young couple from Iceland. They originally were not supposed to be there. The group of nine thought they had the estate all to themselves and were kind of caught off guard the last minute by this additional pair of people who are going to be along for the ride with them. And these two Icelanders are very aloof and mysterious. There's also one who likes to talk about going to these hunting trips in order to quell his instinctual sort of quote-unquote bloodlust, as he likes to describe it. So they kind of have like this eerie vibe to them that rubs everyone in the wrong way, more or less, because they don't know who these people are. They kind of make these weird kind of comments like, okay, what's going on with these people here? Over the New Year's, of course, there happens to be a giant snowstorm and everyone's stuck on the estate because it's so secluded that you can't get helicopters in, you can't drive along the road, it's too dangerous, it just can't do it until the storm passes. And then it's, of course, while this storm happens that a murder occurs out in the wilderness areas of the estate. Initially in the story, you don't actually know who has been murdered. It's not until very late in this plot that you actually find out who has been murdered. This is partly because of the way that the structure of the story is told. As the different chapters shift from perspectives between Miranda, Katie, Emma, Doug, and Heather, each of them is the narrator for each chapter and sort of alternates from chapter to chapter between the five of them. So we get a very close look 
at their thoughts, their feelings, and their sort of perspectives on the different events of the story. And I found this sort of gave a deeper psychological insight to these characters. We sort of find out some of their secrets that they don't openly admit to the other characters that only are shared within themselves in their own thoughts and feelings. So that sort of builds up to our understanding and anticipation of this murder and the events that take place after it. It also sort of gives you different perspectives on events in the story. So for example, in one chapter, one character will make like a rude comment or there'll be an argument. And then in the next chapter, you'll it'll be mentioned in the character's internal monologue or a conversation between like one of the couples and they'll share their sort of personal feelings on what just happened with each other. So you sort of get like these different angles and looks at different things that happen in the novel. And an additional aspect is, is that the chapters flash forward and backwards in time. So some of the chapters will take place before the murder, along the dates of sort of like November or December 29th, 30th, 31st, and then after the murder in January. So you sort of get like this flashing back and forwards and backwards. You don't actually find out who was murdered, who the murderer is, and things like that until very late in the novel, actually, which is a bit of a different take on the way the murder aspect and the mystery aspect is handled. And if you're kind of the person who likes to have the murder occur really early on, and then you kind of figure it out as you go along, then you might find it a little bit different than what you're expecting, because figure out who's been murdered is almost thinking about the relationships between these characters, who would do it for what reason, who would be out to get so-and-so and like things like that. So it's kind of puzzling over these relationships more so than like specific clues, like footprints in the snow or like a gun found wherever and things like that. So it's a slightly different take on puzzling out the mystery aspect of the story. And so if you like complicated relationships, stories of frenemies, the Scottish Highlands kind of landscape and setting, because that's very much a plays a very important role in this story, or just a general murder mystery kind of plot then you may also like The Hunting Party by Lucy Foley. There you go. The only thing that you forgot to mention, Mark, is that all of them are so deeply unlikable that when they start getting murdered, you're like, good. Yeah. This is for the best. You all shouldn't hang out together. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for all. We've been in this room the whole episode. Who did it? Oh. You're supposed to die now. <laughs> I was poisoned by my tea. <laughs> well, it's always the most unlikely person, so probably... Ooh. Ooh. Gabriel. Weirdly enough, we have had this conversation at work. <laughs> I guess it's up to you, the listener, to solve this particular mystery of which of us is the least likely suspect and crack this locked room case wide open. So... Have a wonderful, wonderful week, all of my fellow readers. And um, if you find yourself in a locked room, maybe crack open a window or something. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.